We're looking at three things that will steal your joy and rob your confidence in Christ. And last week, we talked about comparison. And this week, we're going to talk about the idea of competition. Now, we are a very competitive culture. This is probably the, the one that I think is going to speak to us maybe most and what we see all around us is because we ascribe value to winners. Right? All you have to do is think about sports and the way we look at sports and the people who participate in, in the games that we watch on, on TV. We, we love the winners. We overlook the faults of the winners. If somebody is good enough at, the sport, at sports, then we, we let them get away with, with transgressions in their life that we wouldn't let just anybody else get away with. We also ascribe to, to winners, uh, not taking any sides on any sports teams right here, go Gators. We also... Exactly. We also uh, ascribe a goodness to, to those who win and we want to be around them or if we're a winner we want people to be around us and and we, we forget about those those who lose right and and I am I, I like to play games I like to compete I try to win so I'm not saying hey don't go home and play Monopoly with your family uh, after this but the, the, the point that I want to make today is does competing affect your sense of value does it affect who you think you are and how you perceive the, the world around us? Because th that's the reality of it. That's the whole reason we have participation trophies, right? And we've developed that kind of culture in sports. It's because we're trying to protect kids from any loss of, uh, of a sense of significance because they didn't come out on top as far of, uh, of the, the as score goes. So instead of teaching them how to grieve and process and, and anything like that, we just tell them everything's going to go their way because you come out with a trophy anyway. And, and all of us, we know, right, it's football season is right around the corner. It's the, 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 the biggest sport that we watch in, in the United States. Uh, we all know cranky sports guy, right? The person that if their team does not win, they are impossible to be around. I used to be cranky sports guy. Like, I, I understand the, the mindset. Your team doesn't win, so you feel like you've lost something, especially when you're around the other, the fans of the other team who have win. We also, we also know the the person who is the competitive one-upper, right? So if something good happens in your life and you tell them about it, what do they do in response? Oh, yes, you got a new car? Well, I've got a bigger, newer car than you did. You want to come check mine out. We also know this works in reverse, right? If something bad happens to you, I got a cold. Oh, yeah? I got pneumonia. I couldn't get out of bed for a week, right? So we've got competition, and it goes both ways. Performance and results and quality dominate. And just the way we refer to this, winner, loser, we refer to, to this as a state of being rather than, hey, I, I won this game or this competition or, or what have you. And where this really gets even more devastating is when this becomes part of our spiritual lives. Right? When we, when we look at church as a competitive endeavor, Right? Is my church bigger than yours or smaller than yours or growing faster or not? Or do I have more ministries when we begin to compete? That, that becomes a, a bad mindset, more corporate. Every, every church for itself instead of being a body of believers. Or when I, when I take on this attitude of competition where I've got to be the best disciple and I've got to prove it. So I'm going to be in church from the time the doors open till they close. And I'm going to wear this as a badge for, for other people to see. 
okay, that when we live our spiritual life in a competitive way. So we're going we're gonna to look at, at some, some of what the Bible says. I, th I think we're going to have fun. I'm hoping we're going to have fun today. Uh, we're going to go back to the book Genesis. This is my favorite book to, to go through because it just sh it opens up and shows you the brokenness of people. And on the flip side, it shows you the patience and the love of a God who is trying to call people back to him and to live in his image. If you have a Bible with you, if you got it on your phone, you brought one today, I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 29 toward the end of that. We're going to look through 30. I'm going to go through about... Uh, a bunch of scriptures in there as we look at the at this competition. And so if you're turning there or if you just want to know the context of this story that we're going to enter into, God, God is trying to form his people, the people that are going to live in his image. They're going to be a light to the world. We know them as the Israelites. And he starts with this guy named Abraham. And Abraham has, uh, has the son of the promise and he has a son named Isaac. And Isaac marries the love of his life and they have two two sons, twins, uh, Esau and, and Jacob. Now, Jacob, he, his name means, and he is a schemer. And so as the story goes, what happens is the oldest son is supposed to get the birthright. He's supposed to get the, the bulk of the inheritance. It's the, he's the favored son. But what Jacob does, because he's the schemer, is he finagles the birthright away from his, uh, his brother Esau. In fact, Esau was just willing. He was ready to throw it away. That's a whole nother story, another sermon. Uh, and... And so then when Esau realizes when his father dies and he realizes he doesn't have the birthright anymore, he says to Jacob, it's time for you to die. And so Jacob decides, okay, I'm, I'm out of here. And he, he flees through the desert. And when he, 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 he gets to a well, he sees this, this woman named Rachel, who's actually his cousin, so even uh, more good stuff. And, and he's love at first sight with, with Rachel. And so he enters into the, the household of his uncle, uh, Uncle Laban, and he's, he's there for a while. And Laban says, I need to start paying you. And so Jacob makes this deal, ever the schemer. And he says, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel, and I'm going to work seven years for her. And, and, and he, he must have been in love because the Bible tells us that these seven years seemed only as a day to him. Okay, so that's good. Nice and romantic if, if you like that sort of thing. And what happens is Jacob meets his match as far as schemers go because uh, Laban has an older daughter named Leah. And apparently he couldn't get her off the payroll. And so what he decides to do is Laban puts Leah in the marriage tent. So when Jacob apparently had had too much wine at the wedding, enters the tent. Now he's married to, to, to Leah. And so at the end of this, now, I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. This is good stuff, okay? So you, should, you guys should read the Bible, and it's better than any TV show that you can, you can find. And so when Jacob is devastated by this, he confronts Laban, and Laban says, well, if you want to work another seven years, I'll give you my other daughter, and that's where we pick up. Okay, so all of that to set this up. Whew the competition and the destruction it rains down. So this is Genesis chapter 29. I'm going to read verse 30. So Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Right, if that's the first line to the James Patterson novel that you just decided to read over the summer, you're going all, you're going all the way with it, right? It's a page turner at that point. Uh, Jacob loves Rachel more. Okay, and, and th this is what, why I love Genesis. 
Genesis teaches us about human nature. It teaches us about family and generational patterns and how we inherit things from, from, from our family of origin. But it also shows us the goodness of God and how he works through our brokenness and how he's going to, to redeem and re restore things. And he's constantly calling us into a, a deeper relationship with us. So this, this should fill us with confidence. When you listen to this story today, this should fill you with confidence that you can be used uh, as well as the people in this story. Because we've got a bizarre love triangle that we see. We've got Jacob, we've got Leah, we've got Rachel. And by the way, this is exactly why polygamy is not a good idea. Okay, because you've got two sisters who are in competition for the love uh, of one man. Rachel has it, as we just read in verse 30. Leah wants it. She wants, to, she wants to be loved. And so when we go uh, a little further down, I'm going to start verse 30, uh, 32. These verses will be on the screen if you want to, you want to read along with me. Uh, it says, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Now, sons were super important. Okay, sons were, sons were the, the way that the, the, the name of the family and the family line and the family wealth passed through the oldest son. So this was, this was important and Leah was, was going to celebrate. She named him Reuben for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Okay, so you can see the competition taking form. I'm competing for the love of my husband. I've borne him a son. He'll finally notice me. He'll finally think I'm a winner. He'll finally want me. He'll love me more than my sister. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, all right? So, so Leah is providing lots of sons. She should be the favored uh, favored wife. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last, my husband will become attached to me because I have be borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. I mean, can't you just hear her, her grief and her loneliness in, in the words that she's choosing every time that, that she has one of these children? She, she's just begging for Jacob to notice her. She, she's in her mind, she's like, I am clearly better than my sister. I, I am worth more. I've given him three sons. Rachel hasn't given him anything at that point. And, and this is exactly how we use competition. We use it to feed our sense of, of worth. And, and we prove that we're productive enough or that, that, we, are, that, that, that we are good enough for a relationship or for God or for whoever we're trying to prove this for. In, in a survival of the fittest world, there's always going to be someone more fit though, right? And so, so the, 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 the thing going on here is that competition creates feelings of insecurity. Notice Leah, even though she is, she, she's popping out babies as quick as she can, she doesn't feel any sense of security. Listen to these names, Reuben. Reuben means see a son. Like, see, this is what I can do. This is why I'm meaningful or I have worth. Simeon means one who hears. So she was thanking God for hearing her because she had another son. Levi means attached in the, in the, in the mindset of maybe now my husband will become attached to me. Maybe now he'll finally love me. 
And so her mindset was, if I provide these children, then I will get what I want. And I think we're all familiar with this mindset, right? If, if I can just get better grades, then maybe, and I don't know what the way you would fill in the blank. I, I know the way I've heard people that I, that I coach and I talk to and I've pastored, I know how they fill in the blanks. If I just get good enough grades, then maybe my parents will notice me. If I can just earn more money, maybe my wife will, will love me more. Maybe if I just dress in newer clothes, I'll be more accepted uh, when, I, when I'm at work. If I just have more Facebook friends, then that will mean that, that, I, that I am valu valuable. If I just attend church more than everyone else, then that will mean that God loves me. And it's all a competition. Continuing in, in Genesis uh, 29 down to 35, because this is not just a one-sided competition with, with Leah. She conceived again, although she's up four to nothing now, if you're keeping score at home on how this is working out. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Right? That seems kind of irrational. Yeah, I'm sure Jacob was trying his hardest, and, uh, and it just seems kind of a, a weird place to, to, to place blame. So, so <laughs> Rachel's jealous. She's, she's irrational because she's not living up to the, to the standard of her sister. And she sees it and she feels it. Okay? But here's what happens. Instead of treating her as a sister, and she'd grown up with her. Sure, she had, at one point had love for, for Leah. Competition creates an us versus them perspective. Right when when we use this lens as we view the world, it's uh, either you have and I I want, or I have and you want. That's the us versus them, and and that's the lens that we we look at the the world and the interactions and our relationships and and how we make decisions and how we and how we behave. And, and, and I see this all the time in marriages. Marriages become the competition of who is the better spouse. Right, And we have all our rationalizations of, I'm the better spouse because I do these things and you don't. And the, and the spouse can say, well, I do these things and you don't. And, and instead of growing closer together, instead of enjoying each other, it, it becomes a, a relationship filled with, with bitterness and resentment. Competition creates a perspective that, that is unhealthy. Instead of unity, it's us versus them. Continuing on in verse, in verse 3, then she said, okay, because Rachel is upset that she hasn't had any children, she is going to repeat a sin. If you, know the, if you know the story of Abraham and his wife Sarah, God gave them a promise to have, to, that they were going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Well, that didn't happen. And they were really old. And so at that point, Sarah says, have a child with my, with my servant, and that will be the way God does this. And so here is what uh, Rachel says. Then she said, here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. 
right? So this is a generational pattern that's coming back. They, they knew the story. This is, this is a descendant of Abraham. Uh, Jacob is a, a grandson of Abraham. So they all knew what was going, what was going on. They were familiar with, the, with Ishmael being born and how he was conceived versus Isaac and how the promise was, God intended the promise to go through him. So here's the thing, though. Let's, let's not overlook this. Rachel already had the affection of Jacob. She didn't have to work at all for it. He, he, he literally worked for 14 years in order to, to marry this woman and, and have her as a wife. Jacob had already proven his love and his devotion for her. But, but she wasn't feeling, feeling it. Because competition leads you to forget what God has already given. Right? When your identity is based on more and having more and having it now, not, it's never going to be enough. So God's going to always have to be proving himself. Or if you're in a relationship with your spouse of competition, they're always going to have to be proving themselves because it's, it's never going to be enough. You're going to forget what you already have. Now, now when Rachel has, has children through her servant, she names the first one Dan. Dan means vindication. Okay, so now you can see her perspective. It, it, it's no longer about earning the love of Jacob. It's about competing with her sister. And now she's been vindicated. And then she has her next, her next child, Nephtali. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but hopefully you'll forgive me. I'm not in competition with anybody here. <laughs> that name means my struggle. But it's not, it's not a struggle with infertility. Right? It's a struggle against her sister. Okay? They're, they're antagonists now. They're in competition with each other. So we move on to, to verse 5. Okay. I, haven't, I didn't highlight it, so I was about to turn the page. And so Leah is feeling the heat now, too. It's four to two. And so Leah, as we saw before, is not having any more children. So what she does is, is she gave him her servant Bilhah as wife, and Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. And then Rachel said, uh, God has vindicated me and has listened to my plea and given me a son. And because of this, she named him Dan. So the sisters are, are giving up all, all of their values, right? Now, it's no longer about Jacob at all. It's about having more kids. So Rachel gives, gives uh, Jacob her servant. Leah says, not to be outdone, gives Jacob her, uh, her servant as well. But one of the things that we saw is when, when Leah had her fourth child, she named him Judah. I skipped over that earlier because I wanted to mention it now. And Judah means praise. And, and we saw this, this attitude change in Leah. It went from feeling inadequate about, about not having the love of Jacob to resting in the love of God. God was giving her these, these sons. And so she decided uh, to have a mindset change that she was going to praise God for, for what she was doing. But then she saw her sister catching up. And it was now four to two. And so competition corrupts values. Instead of resting in God, what God was doing and what he had done, 
she gives her servant as well and has a son named Gad. Gad means luck has come. So again, it's now she's not attributing these children to God anymore. She's attributing it to chance and to luck. And then Asher, which means happy, which means her happiness was being found in having these, having these children. It was, it was a win-at-all-costs scenario. Continuing on in our, our uh, survey of Genesis as we're racing through, going to verse 15. But she said to her, okay, so this is, this, is, uh, this is Rachel speaking. She said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Uh, I'm sorry, that was Leah speaking. I'm terrible with names. If you know me at all outside this, you'd be amazed at how well I'm even doing keeping these two sisters straight. Okay, so I apologize for that. Uh, I know I'm not perfect, so you can tell me about it later. Uh, that was Leah speak. I'm going to read it again. But Leah said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? She's still feeling the sting. Will you take my son's mandrakes too? See, see, Leah's son was out. He found these things called mandrakes. Mandrakes are, are, are what's called a love apple. And in that day, they had attributed to them the idea of uh, they were like a fertility drug. Okay? And so the son brings them back to, to Leah. They, it was a rare find. It was a big deal. And Rachel wanted them because Rachel still hasn't had a child uh, of her own. And so Rachel responds by saying, very well. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Well, that, that's great. So Jacob went to his favored wife, Rachel. Right? He enters the house. He goes to her. She's the, the favorite. But now Rachel, instead of embracing him and saying, I'm so glad you're home, she says, go to my sister. Okay, I've just, I've just sold you off so that I could have this fertility drug. She, she's basically saying, look, I am busy trying to, to earn your love. Go sleep with my sister if you wouldn't mind. Because here's what's happened. Winning has become the idol. Okay? Instead of it being about the love of a husband, instead of it being about anything it's about now, I need to outdo my sister. And that's what happens in us. Whenever we're in competition, whatever it is, winning begins to take precedence. And we can say things like, oh, I want to I wanna, I wanna pray as much as I can because I want to glorify God, but we could be doing this with an attitude of, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to build up a sense of significance, a sense that I am worth more than you because I pray more than you. Winning becomes the idol. Doing more be becomes the idol. So I'm busy earning your love, Jacob. I got these mandrakes. I'm going to have a, have a kid. But in the meantime, uh, you're sleeping with my sister tonight. So then we go down to verse 22. Finally, it happens. God remembered Rachel. Notice who's responsible for this. This is, this, is, this is God. Even though there's brokenness, even though there's dysfunction, even though this is not necessarily the way that, that God drew this up on the, on the drawing board when he was thinking about relationships between men and women, God's, God remembered Rachel. He listened to her, and he enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me uh, another son. So the Bible's clear here. 
it wasn't the mandrakes that worked. Okay? It wasn't the love potion or the fertility potion that, that made things happen. This was God hearing her. So even though her motivation was wrong, even though, uh, even though the way she was going about this was wrong, God was still faithful uh, on his end. But notice the name that Rachel gives this son. You'd think at this point she'd be joyous and happy and thankful. And she names him Joseph. And if you're familiar with Joseph, you know the, uh, the great things God is going to do through him. And if you don't know much about Joseph, keep reading the pages after we're done today. You're gonna, you'll learn a lot about him. He becomes the focal character uh, of what happens. Joseph means even more. So she's holding this son, the, this answer to prayer, this, this thing that in her mind shows that she's not worthless and she's not defective. And instead of, instead of thankfulness, she says, I want another one. Competition creates a mindset of scarcity. What scarcity is, is scarcity is that even when you have, you hang on to it and you want more. There's, there's never enough. And Joseph's name was always going to be a reminder. Anytime somebody called him, he was going to be a reminder that he wasn't enough. And this is what gets passed onto him. In fact, it, it, when you do read the story of Joseph, this is what God has to break of him uh, as, as, as he gets him ready to, do, to, to work for him. So, so Joseph puts on this attitude of, of, of being better than everyone else. He's overcompensating. And God has a long process to break him of that. And it all started with the attitude of his mother even more. There's lots of brokenness on display in this book, but notice God is working. God's working through these, these people because all of these, all these boys that are being born, these are the origins of the 12 tribes of Israel okay, that are going to come much later. And, and the, the, the interesting thing is the two of the tribes that come through Leah, uh, the, the, through the son Levi and through the son Judah, these are the priestly and the kingly lines of that nation. So through her loneliness, through her desperation, God brings the, 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 the sons that are going to form the line of the priests and the kings uh, of this nation. Don't discount the power of God to do great things even when you feel inadequate to the task. He does great things even when your motivation might be different and you're, you're being formed and, and conformed into the image of Christ and, and you're going to do things imperfectly. God continues to work. Got one more, got one more son that I, that I want to I mention to you before we get to the, the way of the kingdom now. Instead of competition, what is the, what is the way that we're supposed to be, be living? We flip forward to Genesis 35. And, and Rachel, when she named her son, said, I want more. And we get to Genesis 35. This is verses 16 through 18, if you're following along. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from uh, Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. So now she's having that more. right? This is the one more that she had pleaded for while she was holding uh, baby Joseph. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. 
And as she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni. But his father named him Benjamin. See, the moral of the story, at least in this message here, is that competition is going to leave you empty. It's going to take everything away from you. As you're trying to build yourself up and you're using your competition against other people to, to prove your, your worth or that you're better than them or that, you, that you're meaningful or that you're not, that you're, you're not worthless, it's going to, to leave you alone and empty. And we see that in Rachel here. She wanted another son. She wanted to, she wanted to provide another one for Jacob. And now it took her, it took her life. See, competition ends up becoming about building our own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. So we're trying to build our own sense of security, or we're trying to maintain our own sense of control, or we're trying to compete in order to get noticed and have affirmation. It's about our kingdom rather than, than God's kingdom. You might have to offer those things and your desire for those things up to Jesus so that you can grow and become great uh, in the kingdom. And so when co competition is about building up your own kingdom, you put on, an, you put on this image and, and you project it. And, and spiritually, we, we, we do things so that we look like we're closer to God, whether or not we actually are. You know, we might honor God with our lips, but our hearts might be far from him when, when, we, when living in competition. We're trying to earn God's favor as if it could be earned. We're told that, that we don't do anything to, to earn the favor of God. That comes through, that comes through faith. Or sometimes we expect better results, right? If I just try harder, if I just try to be better, whether it's in relationship or as a parent or at my job or wherever, if I just try harder, then I'll get the results that I, that I want. But here's the way of the kingdom, and here's the contrast. And I've got two, two brief passages to, to, to mention to you here. The first one is in 1 Thessalonians, and this is chapter 5. And it's verses 8 through 11. It says, but since we belong to the day. So Paul, the apostle Paul, if you, if you know who he is, Paul had an amazing experience of conversion to Christ. He was a guy who was persecuting the church and killing Christians. So another story of, of God using an unlikely character. And, and so Paul, he, he's, he's teaching, he's training, he's, write, he's writing letters to churches. And so he's telling the Thessalonian church, we belong to the day. Let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So the Thessalonian church, they were worried because they, they had a different eye. They thought that they lived with the idea that, that Jesus was coming back right then. And so there was disappointment. There was also the idea of what happens if somebody dies before Jesus returns? Are they out of luck? And so Paul is writing to them, saying, when you're, when you're in the light whether you're awake or whether you're asleep, meaning whether you're still alive or whether you're, you're, you're not with us anymore, you, ha you have entered into life in Christ. You, you are going to be around for, for, the, for the whole thing. And so Paul says, when you're, he's addressing their discouragement and their disappointment and their distress about this. And he, he says, 
what you guys need to be doing is building each other up. This is the antithesis to competition. Instead of us versus them, instead of scarcity, instead of, of uh, I want what you have and, and you want what I have, we are to be building each other up. We're, Paul uses other words. You can, you can read through the whole New Testament, the Gospels and Paul's writings. We're told we're to edify one another. We're to encourage one another. We're supposed to be devoted to one another. We're supposed to show honor to each other. And all of these are, are different ways of saying the same thing. Build each other up. Bear each other's burdens. Your concern is not just for yourself, but for the body of everyone who, who is a follower of Christ. We're not supposed to be in competition with each other. God doesn't show favorites uh, as, as, we f as we follow him. So, to be honest with you, this has been a struggle for me. Uh, Abe mentioned at the beginning, I'm an, I, I'm an author, I wrote a book, some of you have read it, and I, I appreciate that. One of my struggles has been, uh, been my book ha maybe hasn't sold as much as other people's books, or my expectation, or my little number on Amazon that says where my sales rank is, is not where I'd like it to be against some other people who release their book at the same time. And so slowly, that, that sense of competition, that sense of me versus them, enters in and it and it's and stole some of my joy as I went as I went through this but that wasn't God's purpose it's not not a competition God, God had me write that book I had there was people that read it that needed that needed to read it it might not have been as many people as I wanted that's okay your bank account might not be as big as you want the the, the church you go to might not be as big as you want it doesn't, that's not what God's purpose is in all of this. We need to build up and encourage each other because the, the world systems okay, and the, 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 the people are, are in constant competition to strive to the top. And we have to confront that we are, we are a surrendered people that we are following the will of God, not, not our own will, and we're going to have to, we're gonna have to address that. So we have to, we have to deal with feelings of not being good enough or not being productive enough or what happens when I'm not busy enough because I am, I am doing what I'm told and I'm, I'm resting in God. You can fill in the blank however you want. You're not blank enough. What is that? Because that means that you're in competition with something. See, encouraging is supposed to build confidence. Confidence in our, our faith. Uh, supposed to build our strength. It's supposed to build our endurance for, for, for running this race or walking on this path, whatever, uh, whatever analogy that you want to use. And so if, if you're a parent, you're supposed to be encouraging your kids to give them that confidence that, that, that they are loved and that they are enough. If you're a spouse, you're supposed to encourage your husband or your wife so that they know it's not their performance that you love. It is, it is, it is them. In any other relationship, friendship, family, we are to encourage in our, in our small groups, in our church, wherever, wherever you're meeting people, you are supposed to encourage and build them up, not take from them, not be in competition. See, Christ's kingdom is built through, through encouragement. That's how we get stronger. That's how we grow tighter in bond, in unity. And so you might be thinking, okay, that, I, I'm buying it. Okay, okay, Perkins, how do I encourage? What do I do? What does it mean to encourage somebody? 
Well, here's just a, 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 some things that I would, would say. Here are some ways to encourage. Okay, we mentioned at the top, be praying for Anthony and his family, that they would grow, they would grow stronger as a family, that they would, they would rest in Christ as the center of everything that, that they would do. Prayer is a beautiful way to encourage. Pray for them. Be with them while you're praying. Use kind words, encouraging words to somebody. Let them know what they mean in your life. Let them know, remind people how Jesus sees them. Because again, the, the world presses against us and, and we, we are forgetful people and we forget how, how God sees us and how much he loves us because of what we see all around us. Maybe somebody just needs your presence. If they're grieving, having some sort of loss, whether it's a job or a loved one, your presence, the fact that you're there and not abandoning them, that can be an encouragement. Of course, actions are, are very encouraging when you're acting on somebody's behalf. And maybe that action is generosity. Maybe somebody is going through a low time and, and they just need a public's gift card or they need a little help with something. That is a way to encourage. Uh, uh, affection, and I'm going to put in parentheses, of an appropriate sort, is a way to, to, to encourage somebody. You know, maybe they just need a hug. They just need to feel noticed and that somebody loves them. That's a way to, to offer encouragement. And the last one that I could think of, and I'm sure there's others. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, so you probably have others you're thinking of. Hospitality. You know, open your life, open your house to somebody. This is a way to encourage because love doesn't tear down. Love does not, thinking, does not think of building yourself up at somebody else's cost. This is how we're light. That's how Paul led off that Thessalonian passage that I just read a moment ago. We are the light. We live in, in, in a dark world. So as we encourage, as we live differently, then we get the chance to impact those that are, that are not in Christ just yet. You know, Rachel, she lived feeling devalued, right? She was the favored wife, but she felt like she had no value anyway. Leah, she felt unloved. But they could have, I mean, honestly, they could have encouraged each other, right? They could have sought the best for each other and, and, and been as satisfied as they could possibly be in that, in that, uh, that relationship. Here's one other passage I wanted to mention, and you can read all about encouragement and building up. I can give you a ton of verses. You probably know more of them than I do. In, this, is, uh, this is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. Speaking the truth builds up, helps to grow. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Sometimes encouragement means telling somebody the difficult things. Being the one that loves somebody enough to tell them the truth and to, to demonstrate compassion and to be there and to be steadfast with them instead of rejecting them. Because encouraging builds community. In fact, encouraging, building up, however you want to phrase it, is a necessary ingredient of having a growing, thriving, loving, nurturing community of believers in Christ. Encouraging builds trust in, in one another because we know we've got each other's back. Because when I turn my back, you're not going to be tearing me down and sticking a knife in it uh, when, I, when I can't see. 
We live in a culture that is individualistic, right? It's everyone for themselves. But that's not how our faith is supposed to be lived. Our faith is not an individualistic faith. It is a, a group faith a body faith. When I'm down, you're supposed to lift me up. When you're down, I'm supposed to lift you up. We're supposed to grieve together. We're supposed to rejoice together as we follow Christ together. So I leave you with this. Encouraging requires a mindset on your identity in Christ. You have to, you have to constantly be aware and dwelling on who are you in Christ so that when, when, when somebody else succeeds, you, you don't feel like you've lost anything. And when you succeed, you don't feel a sense of pride that you are better than, than, than somebody else. Developing this new way, way of thinking takes intentionality and it takes entering the presence uh, of the God who, who's given us his image. And that's what victory looks like. And that cannot be taken from us. So we've got to think about ourselves the way God thinks about us. He loves us. He sent his son for us. He chose us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. All of those things are true. And all of those things will not, will not leave us. That's different than the way the world thinks. The world that says to be valuable, you've got to produce. Or you've got to produce well. That's not, that's not how we're supposed to live. Please pray with me. God, thank you so much that, that I, I can rest, that even though I'm, uh, I, I am broken and even though I misspeak and even though I read one of my verses today wrong, uh, that you can still use uh, the broken things about me to encourage and to hopefully impact others. And uh, I'm thankful for that, God. Um, and so I just pray all of us would have that confidence, uh, the confidence that you created a nation through this dysfunctional, uh, this dysfunctional marriage and this competition to have more kids. Um, God, we love you. And we follow Jesus imperfectly. And I pray that uh, as we leave here today and we are confronted by a world that's going to judge us by how much we produce or what we produce or um, how we compete, that we would, we would rest, that you, you judge differently. And that the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about others is, is supposed to be aligned with the way you think. So give us the strength and the wisdom to encourage, to love others, and to rest always in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.